we do have a thing uh, called just sorry, Tyler, which is just every time we mess up, it's just instantly sorry, Tyler. Tyler, I'm sorry. I'm sorry already. <laughs> I've already ruined it. Tyler, get used to it. It's going to happen <laughs> a lot. I'm sorry. So I've decided I want it to be your birthday every day. Um, cool. So hey, proceed accordingly. <laughs> I'm so down. Here's the Here's the thing. I would be fine with it as long as I don't actually age that quickly. You know what I mean? Right, like right, if right. It was my bur- if it was if I was aging a year every day, that would be excessive and too much for me. And I think I would I I think I would be sad. Well, right. And then I only get what a hundred birthdays out of you, Max. Well, you only get that anyways, but you only get 100 days out right. of the max, correct? Yeah, and yeah. you've spent, you know, a, a good chunk of that. So really, it's not even 100. <sighs> no, don't remind me. <laughs> 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 You're really making this whole death thing. Uh... Uh, <laughs> That's very fitting, given what we're going to talk about. So I know. I wanted to make a joke, but I just couldn't get there quick enough. I just want to be like, my mental health isn't great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> so you have so many good friends who came to your birthday party. Uh, I'm very lucky, uh, that all of those people are willing to come and say hello to me, uh, and spend time with me because, uh, they are wonderful. Everybody there was so wonderful. Um, and I, I feel so lucky. You're to, the common yeah. denominator there. So I wouldn't necessarily call it luck. You know, that's you're very kind. Uh, <laughs> there's yes, it was it was a it was quite a uh, uh, quite a group, and uh, and and it was so good to be able to see everybody. It was funny because I I even forgot it with with you and Abria, but I was like, I don't know who knows who. Like, there's so many people that that existed in different friend groups that. That Wait, knew this is each other? such a good story. Okay, so Spencer is in full host mode, which is amazing. He's been so great introducing people. He's hyping everyone up. Like, amazing, fabulous. Abria, I ran across the party to hug her because she and I know each other fairly well. And then, like, an hour later, I'm standing near Abria, and Spencer comes up and goes, you guys don't know each other, immediately launches into these amazing intros. Turns out, Abria and I have played in a home game that Spencer ran. (laughs) To be fair, I run (laughs) lots of games. (laughs) I run like three games a week. So, you know, it's like, uh, it's, there, that was the thing. It was really deceiving because, like, I invited everybody that I wanted to be there, obviously. And, and so many people said yes. And then I was like, oh my God, there's going to be so many more people here than I thought. And then people started arriving and people that I thought, I swore knew each other were like, we've never met. And the people that (laughs) there's no way they would ever know each other were like, yeah, yeah, we, we've known each other for like years. I'm like, what is going on? So I just defaulted to introducing everybody to everybody else. Uh, so that nobody felt awkward. But then, you know, you end up introducing people to each other that have done each other for a very long time. But that makes you the MVP because honestly, those moments where you see someone's face and you're like, oh, I know, I know you. I just am not the brightest bulb and the name will <laughs> never get there. My, my favorite, my favorite is when they're like, oh my God, Spencer, it's so good to see you. And you're like, yeah, uh, mm, 
It starts with an M. No, it's an M. No, it's an M. <laughs> no, you just go, it's so good to see you too. It's nice to see and be seen. But then my brain panics because then they're like, and then somebody else is like, oh, who is this? And you're like, oh! this is a friend of mine. <laughs> Hey, let's do that thing. Hey, I'm Rowan Hall. <laughs> hey, I'm Spencer Stark. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. So fascinating. <laughs> Please keep doing that. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to echo you in whispers, if that's cool. Yeah. So each and every week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can... You should. You should support the podcast. Sorry, I'm going to stop interrupting. Please do it. <laughs> you can become a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable. Check out our merch at willingandfable.com. Follow us on social media at willingandfable. Tell your favorite cousin that we're cool. Um, or, oh wait, this is something that Tracy normally does. So... You want me to do it? Do you want to do it? Yeah, I can do it. Do it. Okay. Or... You can go to your nearest craft supply store and purchase glitter, sprinkling it around wherever you walk, fascinating small children and cursing every adult you meet with a mess that will last forever. But no matter what you do, we're just glad you're here. Oh, my God. <laughs> I wrote that and you just read it so well and I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like I'm a... It feels, did you ever as a kid... Sorry, we're already going on tangents. Did you ever as a kid <laughs> make leprechaun traps? We were, we were just talking about that in our leprechaun episode. We really okay. I need to listen so to leprechaun episode often. So I spent so much of my childhood trying to catch leprechauns and also this creature that we called the Shadow Man. Um, That's terrifying. Truly terrifying. Yeah, um, I did that to myself. I think why would. You were trying to catch the Shadow Man. Yeah, because... Not repel him, catch him. He followed us everywhere. He was the Shadow Man. You know, this explains... This explains so much. Okay, so I told Tracy when she left on her vacation that I got you to come on the podcast. And I was like, Tracy, when you're gone, it's just going to be me and Spencer being sweet, spooky little emo boys. Because she always tells the happy stories, and I just never do. <laughs> nope. Nope. You talk about Shadow Man. See, that's where <laughs> the difference lies. I feel like that prompt was giving me hardcore leprechaun, uh, childhood leprechaun sprinkling glitter, trying to attract the leprechauns to like my mouse trap that I set up. That's what it felt like to me, and I just want to say thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a... a teacher that would put green glitter all over the classroom during march oh my god it was amazing what a nightmare you know what you know i feel so bad for the janitor of that <laughs> of that school <laughs> after the teacher did that actually you should feel worse for my mother so i had a room in our house that was like my kind of art playroom because sure. my parents worked from home and they were like, this is your room to leave us alone. Cool, cool, cool. Great. And when I was older, and I mean older, like 12 or 13, like okay. a functioning okay. person, I found in my room a whole big thing of glitter. It was like clear, just a shaker of glitter. And my mom had put it in there like, this is with my stuff, put it where it goes. And I said, oh, thank you for the glitter. And instead of putting it away, I sprinkled it around the entire room and danced oh and twirled God. around and put glitter everywhere. And to my mother's credit, she didn't even get mad at me. She was just like, well, you committed. <laughs> I can't even be upset. 
<laughs> yep. 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 Sometimes you just got to respect. You got to re- just respect the bit. <laughs> oh, wait, hold on. I haven't even introduced you. Oh, my goodness. Okay. You might have noticed there's a not Tracy here talking with me. This is the fantastic, illustrious Spencer Stark. He agreed to come on the podcast and hang. If you aren't familiar, I'm going to pretend we're at your birthday party. Okay, only sounds good. It's not your birthday party. Um, hey, you might not know Spencer. Uh, this is my friend Spencer. He's hey. a game designer at Critical Role. He's one of the designers behind the tabletop role-playing game Kids on Brooms. And if that wasn't enough, he is the brilliant mind behind Icarus, a storytelling game about how great civilizations fall. And the RPG played entirely via text, Alice is Missing. And because this is a party and I'm introducing you to my friend and I'm really going to hype, um, just so you know, Alice is Missing was recognized in 2021 with multiple Any Awards. Uh, it was recognized for Best Rules. It took home the gold for best game, and it was awarded product of the year. So, uh, shake hands. This is Spencer. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm uh, just receding into my turtle shell, as you say. All of this, <laughs> uh, just pulling back, disappearing into the void, never to be perceived. But I can't introduce you to the person who I'm talking to because I don't know their name. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. That's very good. Uh... I'm sorry. I won't. I won't do that again and embarrass you. <laughs> It's it is the greatest honor uh, of my lifetime, and also uh, my greatest fear to be perceived. So uh, you know, it's a <laughs> it's the it's the ever struggle. I <laughs> this is so awful. Okay, so you and I were technically at a Halloween party before we actually met. Oh my god, we were, huh? We were. We were at Sage's Halloween party, and I meet so many good people at Sage's parties, and you came late. And yeah, I was at a different party. I was at a party. I was at a um, I was at a murder mystery party before. Wow, that. that's so cool. Well, you came late, and you were kind of like energy wise, you were like a little chill. You didn't, you weren't doing the bopping around thing. And I instantly was like, well, I'm not gonna. I can't introduce myself to that person because they clearly are like doing their own thing, which is my own narrative. And I was like, oh, that person's wearing such a good burgundy suit i should say something and i full-on chickened out and then by the time i was like you know what i can be social like i can introduce myself to anyone what am i even doing you were already gone and i said to sage like who is that person who just came and left that i never met and they were like oh that's spencer stark that's our friend who you could have just said hello to at any moment That's Uh, crazy. I could have gone my whole life and never told you that story, but here I am. Well, you know, we live and we learn, and uh, I feel like uh, there were so many people at that party that I didn't know, and so I was there like, I'm gonna gonna hang with, like, I literally just come from a party where I didn't know anybody either, like, literally knew, knew nobody. I knew the host, and that was it, and then I arrived at another party, and that party was not uh it was fine it was the murder mystery part we sort of played halfway through and we're like oh this is dumb uh this is a very poorly designed game we're just going to not do this anymore and so we left and we're like what can we do for halloween because we felt like it was a bust and then we were like well sage invited us let's go there and they got there and there were like five people that i knew and i was like all right i'm just gonna hang out with these five people so is a uh, story being from my side of it I wish you had, because I didn't know very many people there. <laughs> to uh, save us both from shame, I'm going to cut to a quick ad break. Um, 
Because before we dive into the episode, I get to brag on another person uh, that I really dearly love in the gaming community. Uh, That's Leah from Greenleaf Geek. She has been sponsoring the podcast for a very, very long time. Greenleaf Geek makes custom, handcrafted resin dice designed for you based on your wants, your needs, your character, your campaign. It's amazing. And if you want curated dice, I have tons of sets that Leah picked out. Spencer actually... Um, When I joined you for Blades in the Dark, I coordinated my dice to my character Mm -hmm. with the Medusa set from Greenleaf Geek. So check out Greenleaf Geek on Twitter and Instagram at Greenleaf Geek. You'll get to hang out with an artist we love. Leah posts such amazing content. Shop GreenleafGeek.com for all your gaming gear needs. And when you do, use the code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. Those dice were good. They were good dice. They're I, very cool. I was playing uh, in a campaign last night, and we have a new player. And every time she was talking about wanting new dice, both Tracy and I would just go, use the code FABLE. That's F-A-B-L-E. Send <laughs> off your order. It's very meta and very good. It was very meta. Should we, should we talk about our myth? Yeah, I want to talk about our myth so bad. So I gave Spencer the pick of any topic he wanted in the whole world, and we kept referencing Orpheus and Eurydice, but Spencer wasn't picking it and I and hadn't made a decision. And I was like, finally, like, hey, Spencer, <laughs> you love this. And you and I have talked about Orpheus and Eurydice off and on, I think for months. I think it yeah. always comes up when we talk. Yeah, for some reason, uh, some reason or another, it always it always comes up. And so uh, I, and I, you know, I, I know the myth from I, I knew the myth from various uh, sources, uh, <laughs> some of which is, you know, early, uh, grade school mythology and, and others being adaptations and things that have happened based on it. But I never actually dove into the, you know, the, the classic, um, myth as it is, as it is told. And, and we learned a lot, I think, <laughs> along the way and had some questions. So I, it, it became more fascinating for me too, as, as we started exploring it. So I'm geeking out. We get to start the episode. Spencer wrote an original version of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth for us. Yeah, I'm going to do the retelling. Our tragedy begins with Orpheus of Thrace, born to the god Apollo and the muse Calliope. Through his great adventures of youth, he became a legendary hero, best known for his music and poetry, and its ability to charm all creatures, friends and foes alike. One day, he met a beautiful woman named Eurydice, who he fell madly in love with. They soon married, and despite a warning from Amenes, the god of marriage ceremonies, who told them that their perfection would not last, they lived happily together, at least while they could. See, Amenes was not wrong. While Eurydice was out wandering with the forest nymphs, as she was apt to do, she saw a man approaching. She recognized him. As Aristeus, another son of Apollo and a shepherd of this land. His approach became ominous, ill-intentioned, lustful. Her beauty seemingly transfixed him and he began to pursue her. Running from his advances, desperate to escape his chase, Eurydice strayed from the path of the forest, and in the underbrush, a snake bit her upon the ankle. Venom seared through her veins, and in an instant she collapsed, her life fading 
In her last moments, she called out for Orpheus, but he could not hear her. And so, alone, she was taken by Hades into the underworld. When Orpheus learned of her death, he mourned with such sorrow in song that the living and non-living mortals and gods heard his cry and knew his grief. A grief that led him to do what only he could. Attempt to travel to the underworld and bring Eurydice back with him. Any normal mortal would not have survived, but being the son of Apollo and protected by the gods, Orpheus was able to reach the river Styx, bypass the great Cerberus using nothing but his instrument to lull it to sleep, and finally reach the gods themselves, Hades and Persephone. And so, standing before them, asking for Hades to let his wife return with him to the world above, he played a song that delighted the god of the underworld so much, he agreed to let her leave, but under one condition. Eurydice must follow behind Orpheus on the journey home, and he may not look back at her, or she would return to the land of the dead forever. Overcome with the joy of his star-crossed love being returned to him, Orpheus agreed. But as he began his journey back to the mortal realm, he realized he had nothing but the sound of Eurydice's footsteps behind him to validate his victory. Footsteps that grew fainter and fainter the closer he climbed to the surface. Stone turning to gravel, and gravel to soft dirt below his feet. Perhaps she was tired, or, or perhaps he was walking too quickly. He would wait and listen, but the footsteps soon disappeared altogether. And as he arrived at the threshold, preparing himself to step back up into the land of the living, he feared the worst, that Eurydice had been lost, or, or Hades had tricked him. Maybe she was never following him all along. He had no way of knowing. His mind raced and his heart grew heavy as his boots sank into the wet soil of winter. He feared he was all alone on the cusp of the realm he and his wife once called home together. So, in a moment of panic, Orpheus did the unthinkable. He looked back for just a moment. Only a glance, he thought. Not enough for Hades to ever know. But in that moment, his eyes locked with his sweet Eurydice, beautiful and barefooted in the moonlight. She was there, right behind him. She was there. And then she wasn't. In an instant, she was pulled back into the darkness and lost to the underworld once again. Orpheus, realizing his mistake and desperate to save her from it, attempted to pursue, but quickly found he could not enter the land of the dead a second time. He was given his chance, and it was over. So he did the only thing he knew to do. He picked up his lyre, put his hands on the frets, and he sang, begging for his own death 
so that he may see her once again. Oh, Spencer, that's like bedtime story magic status. Tragic bedtime stories. The most. You imagine if we read these stories to children as they went to sleep, they'd be better prepared for the world, I think. My parents did read me these stories for bedtime. That's awesome. (laughs) I, you really captured the longing in this story that I think is such an important element that gets really cleaned out of it uh, when it gets presented kind of in school, I think, a lot. Sure. Uh, It just becomes very step-by-step rather than his emotional journey because this is is all about Orpheus's emotional journey. Yeah. I mean, that's what's fascinating for me is that, like, this is a story about uh, a a person who loves somebody else so much they will go to the ends of the earth and uh, do, like, literally do a thing that nobody else can do, put themselves in the most danger they could ever possibly be in to save the person they love. Um, And that's why I think it resonates so much it's it's a romantic story and i don't just mean that in the sense of orpheus and eurydice being in love but there is a romance to it that is kind of separate from the loving i think yeah so before we kind of dive into analysis we're just going to quickly talk history um let's do it the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, like many stories born of an oral tradition, has no first author. Virgil and Ovid wrote two of the most famous accounts that we have, but records of it mention stories long before their works. In Euripides' play Alcestis from 438 BC, King Admetus wishes he had Orpheus's power to journey to the underworld to bring his life back. And that brief reference tells us that this story populated the common understanding in the way that referencing a celebrity today would have the same connotations. You can just reference it and then that person has an idea of the entire backstory. Yeah, everybody knows, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also think ancient Greek audiences may have expected the formula of man loves nymph equals tragedy in the layout of this tale. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I mean, if we look at Narcissus, who was the son of a river god and a nymph, so also had powerful parentage. Right. His possible love story with the nymph Echo was foretold to be downfall by a seer. And not unlike the god of marriage foretold Orpheus and Eurydice's downfall. So I I might be jumping the gun, but nymphs in Greek mythology are basically like the hot blow up doll girl of <laughs> that allows men to have like journeys and desires. Right. They appear in stories all the time as just like this perfect version of a woman. And so Eurydice is that nymph in this tale. Um Right. And it's interesting because she goes out into the forest with the nymphs, but she is never referenced, at least as far as I could find. She was never referenced as being a nymph herself. So it's interesting that the, the, even by like putting her with the nymphs in the forest when she dies, they're sort of like alluding to that, right? Without saying it. So that's the thing. Different authors got specific in very different ways. So one author describes her specifically as a nymph of the forest. Oh, really? I I didn't see that. 
It, some authors don't mention it at all. And, yeah. and that's kind of part of the redefining story, adapting, but also having a common language. Some authors might have known they didn't even need to reference it. Wow. So Plato came along about 80 years after that 438 BC, presenting a very different version of Orpheus in his symposium. And in his telling, Orpheus only goes to the underworld to prove that he can make it alive. Upon finding out that the young man is unwilling to die for his lover, Hades presents Orpheus with an apparition or a fake Eurydice. And then after failing his quest, Orpheus is later torn to shreds, which we will talk about later. And I'm interested in this Orpheus that's in it for glory. Yeah, feels a little like more Hercules. Mm-hmm, very much so. Than it does the, the traditional telling that that we sort of see elsewhere um he's doing it for uh for his own like uh self-worth or like i just to prove a point right that he's powerful uh which is the opposite kind of of what of what we see at least in 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 uh previous versions i was reading like it was about him doing the unthinkable and like going into this place to save the person he loves doing it not selflessly because he was doing it because he loves her and wants her but like he he wasn't trying to prove anything. He was just trying to get to the person he loved. Um, so, yeah. I get the sense that ancient Greek audiences would be more receptive to a man doing a trial like this for valor than we are today. Right, right, right. Uh, but it's really the Roman writers who define the Orpheus and Eurydice story that's very, very common now. They make it so much more famous than it ever was. So Virgil appears with Georgics in 29 BC, and Ovid came along 40 years later with Metamorphoses in about 8 CE. Both tellings are epic poems that describe a brave, grieving Orpheus, master of song, and melancholy. He's our sweet emo boy now. So it's interesting, because I, I didn't realize this, and and, uh, and you being the master of this, uh, I appreciate you. The, the, just knowing that, like, the, the, that actually, the, the, the current tale that we know came afterwards in some respects. Like, with the, that that uh, quest for valor, Orpheus, was before uh, the modern tale, that, modern in quotes. Uh, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, like the, the understanding of the tale we have now, which is which is interesting to me. I want to caution you, though, because one version of these two stories you're not going to like, I think, okay. a little bit, maybe. I don't know. You know what? Let me not, <laughs> let me not make assumptions. Okay, okay, okay. So the two writers give us very different stories. Ovid sets Eurydice's death in a meadow where she's joyously dancing with a group of naiads or nymphs. She's bitten by a snake. And that's a bit different than the story you just told. Yeah. Because she's not chased by anyone. Right. She, it's just a snake. It just happens. In Ovid's telling, after failing in his quest, Orpheus stays true to his word not to fall in love with any other women. And here, he had many romantic relationships with the young men of Thrace. Virgil takes a less kind approach. Eurydice dies when she's chased by the violent and jealous shepherd Orestius, who wants her for himself. And that is the first introduction of attempted sexual assault into this story, as far as I know. She's still bitten by the snake. The man is not her undoing. But after failing to retrieve his wife from the underworld, 
Virgil grants Orpheus an incredibly violent death. And I do promise we'll talk about that because it is <laughs> arguably my favorite part of the story. So whether or not Orpheus stayed single or went on to have many male lovers, I think it's really worth noting that Orpheus was loyal to Eurydice in a way that very, very few men in ancient Greek mythology are. To begin, Ancient Greeks didn't view homosexual relationships between men as something that would conflict with a man's relationship with his wife. So Orpheus having male lovers could have happened with Eurydice alive. It wouldn't necessarily have been noteworthy. But keeping women out of the equation specifically was his ode to her passing, him maintaining his honor. Ovid wrote in Metamorphoses, quote, Indeed, he was the first of the Thracian people to transfer his affection to young boys and enjoy their brief springtime and early flowering this side of manhood. And that's something that I talked about a lot in episode 71 on Achilles and Patroclus. We look at that now, I think, very differently yeah. than the ancient Greeks did. But there is this intense sexuality to Orpheus that is talked about in some of these tales that I don't think diminishes him as a lover, but it is different than telling a story in which he is only this like pining lover. Yeah. His desire is all romantic. And I was trying to contextualize this and I was looking at, you know, Perseus never cheated on Andromeda. But past that, Orpheus's loyalty, his romantic loyalty, more closely resembles Penelope pining for Odysseus. And it doesn't seem like that behavior in the scope of this myth affects anyone's view on Orpheus's manhood, which so often I think in this pantheon manhood is tied to like Hercules going to the underworld. It's all brute strength. It's conquering. It's killing. And Orpheus, this story, his place in this story centers creativity, I think, above all. Yeah, he's a soft boy. He's a soft boy. <laughs> right? Like, he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't want to kill it. He does, I mean, yeah, he does. I mean, he he goes on adventures earlier in his life, and we'll talk about that mm -hmm. soon. But like, He's kind of just a soft boy. He just kind of he just wants to take care. He's like at least in the myth that we that that sort of become popular. It's like he's not there to fight Hades, right? Right. He's not there to conquer Hades. He's he's not he's not trying to he's trying to save the person he loves. And so he sings a song, right? And that's like <laughs> that's the way that he does his his conquering, which like you said centers creativity more than it centers what the what 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 um uh, Greeks might see as, as manhood. Um, which I wonder, I wonder, I mean, you know more than I do, I'm sure. Oh, don't uh, do having that. done so many of oh, these. Oh, don't do no, that. No, no, no. no you, you've done, you, just <laughs> sheer fact that you've done like so many of these episodes. Uh, uh, any insight into the way that Greeks saw manhood? Yeah, I don't want to say that manhood was all killing and conquering because that makes it seem as if the Greeks didn't value poetry and music, which they right, so right. clearly did. They did. I mean, we have the Greek philosophers. Uh, I I won't dive into this too much, but we talked about in uh, the episode on Achilles and Patroclus, you know, the Greeks thought men having 
a small penis was proof that they were smart. Interesting. And if they were more well endowed, that they were all physical, and then that would be seen as barbaric. So there is this desire for heightened intellect, but also men spend an incredible amount of time at the gym, literally at the gym, like working out mostly naked, to be honest. Um, And there was this culture of kind of like older men teaching younger men how to, quote, be a man. And different city-states in ancient Greek had different cultural practices. But there is more than one way to be a man. In ancient Greece, but also in the world. But I think we just don't see as many myths that put it in this framework. And that really excites me. Yeah. So, as you mentioned, son of Apollo and Calliope, he did go on adventures. He traveled with the Argonauts uh, and Jason to search for the Golden Fleece. And he was pretty much the reason all of those suckers survived. He was famous for his skill with the lyre. He entertained the crew as they sailed. He drowned out the alluring voices of deadly sirens to keep the men from uh, becoming their victims. He allowed Jason to capture the fleece when he used his music to put to sleep the sleepless dragon that guarded the fleece. He had an ability to put things to sleep with music. I think we'll see that going through. I don't know if that's like a common uh, 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 Greek thing that like music helped people to sleep, but we see that more than once. I don't know if that's his specific superpower or if that's like just music in general, but it is strange that he's like done that. He does that more than once. Can I have it, please, for the love of the gods? Yeah. Oh, my God. He also was so fantastically talented that no one could resist his music. Not God, not mortal. His music caused the trees to dance and stones would roll to be nearer to him when he sang and played. (laughs) To quote interesting literature, quote, Indeed, so closely intertwined is Orpheus's name with the tradition of lyric poetry, so named because it was originally sung to be musical accompaniment, courtesy of the lyre, that a tradition later grew up that both Homer and Hesiod, the two greatest poets of ancient Greece, were descendants of Orpheus. For the most part, everyone acknowledges that Orpheus wasn't a real person, except yeah. Aristotle, I think. I think I'm remembering that correctly. I think Aristotle was like, no, no, really? no. Really? That he, he was, was real? <laughs> wow, I I, that's cool. I hope I'm right about that. I like Aristotle's style. <laughs> He's like, no, no, no. No, that was real. Also, can I just say, uh, my mind just got blown a little bit. I don't know if it's something you talked about before, uh, <laughs> but you kind of just blew my mind here in that lyric poetry, lyrics, comes from the lyre. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you see those two words next to each other, not next to each other, you see those two words very commonly, but like, never have I gone lyre, lyric. Oh, absolutely the heck not. Sometimes I don't even know what regular words mean. I'm not making connections like that on my own. (laughs) That's awesome. There was also a specific structure called Orphic Hymns that were named for him. Wow. And supposedly he wrote a very, very famous one. Again, was he a real man? Or did someone just write one saying he was from Orpheus? (laughs) Uh, the ultimate pen name. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like when they put the Jolly Green Giant on uh, on some sort of food product, and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's his. And then it becomes like, no, that was the food <gasps> of the giants. Right? Oh, my God, let's mess up a child forever and tell them that. 
so good. Uh, <laughs> oh, this is why I can't be a parent. We uncover that, you know, somebody uncovers that like so like like thousands of years later and goes like, wow, they had giants. They had food of the giants. That's what they Oh, it's like Zardoz. Yeah. <laughs> We're bad people. Okay. Orpheus's music serves two purposes within the context of the myth allowing him to express himself as he experiences love and loss, and then the music he creates to alter people's moods or perceptions in a way that grants him incredible influence. Like, political-level control. Yeah, there's a, there's a strangeness there for me around being able to control people via song. Like, I, I don't know, there's, there, he's, at least what in what I was reading, he wasn't using it for evil. But I feel like that's a thing that could be oh, I'm getting a look. Uh is that not you're true? Only, is no, that not you're, true? No, no, no. He okay. doesn't really use it for evil. I just I imagine Orpheus just he's he was incredibly gifted from the time of his youth, and he was very beautiful. And he just seems like one of those boys who Things come so easily to him so often. Yeah, he just gets everything he wants. Yeah. And I think the times when things don't come easily to him, he just must be so affronted, just baffled. Yeah. I, his reaction to to the person he loved being taken away was not like, okay, let's grieve and let's like find a way to move on. He's like, no, I get what I want. Exactly. He has the Which audacity of a privileged person. Yes, Spencer. Yes. <laughs> he has the audacity that comes from incredible privilege and incredible beauty. <laughs> it, and it, okay, so we're looking at this like a myth, like a story, like cute bedtime right, story. Right, right. But he puts Cerberus to sleep. He convinces Chiron to shepherd him across the river Styx. For free. He's the only person who does that. He enchants the shades of the underworld. He drives the furies to weeping. These women do not mess around like that. Sisyphus yeah. stops rolling his stone. And even the vultures stop feasting on the liver of Titius. So even the punishments in the underworld stop for a moment because of his music. He he just he he has to be the center of attention. I think I think that's the like he just plays and everybody looks at him right. And we know those people. Like there are people out there that like walk into a room and you're like, oh, everybody's this this in 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 good and bad ways depending on who they are. But like somebody walks in, and you're like, oh, they have become the center of the conversation because they just exist here. And that is, it's funny to see that sort of played out via myth, right? Like we'd see that in our daily lives uh but to see it also in a myth where like everybody drops everything to look at this person um to to acknowledge this person's existence um and this person has i mean you know he's got the highest charisma score <laughs> out of out of all the D &D rolling gods. fives and below and still getting dirty 20s just insanely yeah yeah, yeah 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 he is reliable so it's just like any rolls he makes or at least a 10 right like it's it's not yeah he's it's he he does he has no issue uh having to talk his way out of things um and th perhaps that's why he doesn't have to fight right because he can just get his way without it 
And like, what better way? I love that for him because, like, of course, I love like the soft boy artist. The lyre is the <laughs> symbol of a soft boy in ancient Greek yeah. mythology. Like, if you see a statue of someone with a lyre, it's either Apollo, Orpheus's daddy, or Orpheus, basically. Yeah. But I just know that he would be one of those mm, band boys, like one of those like yep. musician types who just thinks that he's spectacular, just spends... But he is. And that's the... Oh, it's the problem, because you're like, you are objectively spectacular, but you don't have to be insufferable. <laughs> so true. I'm just putting so much on this story. It's just supposed to be like two hot young lovers, and I'm like, but wouldn't he be awful? <laughs> <laughs> he might be. You know, it's funny. We'll talk about it later, but it's funny. There's... um. In 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 one of the adaptations we're going to talk about, there's there's a there's a thing where like everybody expects him to be insufferable, and he kind of is, but he doesn't mean to be, and he he's sort of innocent, um, which which is also kind of insufferable. Yeah, right. That's the insufferability <laughs> of, <laughs> of it. Is like he's innocent. He doesn't know. He just is. He knows he's good at what he does. You can't be mad because it's like this innocent awfulness. God. Oh my God. I I couldn't. I absolutely could not. I'd be the snake in this story. I'm like, yes, <laughs> screw your wife. <laughs> Make you cry. <laughs> I'll give you something to cry about, soft boy. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's talk about bargaining and death. Because cool, great. this is one of the things in the story that I love so, so much. So people commonly refer to death today as having five stages. And for better or worse, it's part of our modern lexicon we have denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I personally have never experienced death that neatly, but analysis always makes things cleaner than experience. Right. It kind of, for me, like, it, it, those are five steps that exist. Whether they happen uh, in that order and by themselves is uh, up to question, right? It's like sometimes it goes denial, then anger, then back to denial. Mm -hmm. Then over to bargaining, then back to anger, right? Like we see this sort of bouncing around, at least for me, it, it, that's how it was. And it's like, that's how it is. Um, and so it's, yeah, but, but it makes it cleaner, right? We can just like give a flow chart and then have people look at that. And it's like, does that flow chart then influence how we think about ourselves when we are going through loss? Yes. Language influences experience just as much as experience influences language, I think. So it's like by giving people that, are we guiding them to understanding to to pr project our our uh very strict way of understanding death um it, are we giving them a guide by which to to take that experience uh and and that changes the way they actually experience it i don't know it, it has to right it has to influence my it. preferred model of grief actually is like you have a box and you have a ball inside the box oh and yeah at first, yeah we talked yeah, about this oh my god i forgot I think I think I shared this with you. I think I maybe. Did you know it before then? I think then? I did, but maybe you just okay, put it good. on the forefront of my mind because I've been thinking about it. Okay, Spencer and I, upon like first proper meeting, <laughs> basically just got right into it, and we're like talking about death and mythology and grief and uh huh uh huh yeah grief yep. <laughs> this is our friendship. Sadness yeah. and yep. Uh, yeah, there's that, it's the box and the, the box and the ball and the spike. Uh, yeah, explain it how you explained it to me, because that must be why I'm always, 
Are you sure? I don't want to. I don't want to take. I don't want to take. You were starting to explain it. I don't want to jump in and have and and interrupt you if if you want to explain it. No, it. I think I knew about it before, but it must be because of our conversation that it's been on the forefront of my mind in the last long kind of pandemic. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can I can talk about it. So basically, there's like a box and there's a ball. Uh, and there's a like a spike in 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 the box. And uh, when you first experience grief, um, at least for me, that ball was very large and it bounces around that box and doesn't have m- very many places to go. So it keeps hitting that spike. And I think of the spike as like, you know, like a triangle on the bottom of that box uh, sticking face up into the box where the ball is bouncing. The ball bounces around and hits uh, the sides and then hits the bottom, hits the spike. Uh, and causes pain, right? And it reminds us of that pain that we're going through. And then as time goes on, the ball shrinks in size, and it still bounces around the box. But every once in a while, uh, it'll hit that spike. And when it does, you still feel that pain. And so that that ball never uh, goes away. The spike never goes away. The ball just gets smaller and smaller. Uh, and so because of that, there, there are always moments for me, where something comes up and the ball bounces and it hits that spike and, and, and I'm reminded of the grief that, that I can't escape, right? And like, even though it doesn't come up for a week at first and then it doesn't come up, well, first it's like you can't stop thinking about it. And then it's like you go a day, you go your first day without thinking about it. And that's sort of a change. And that's that, that ball just getting a little smaller. And then, you know, it goes a week or a month or a year. Um, it never goes away. I think is the point. Like it, 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 you always have to be prepared that like that ball could hit the spike at any time. Um, and so, and so that is sort of how I see it and how, how I've come to terms with the fact that like, this is not something that I, um, am that it, that I, that I can expect myself to never feel once I'm quote unquote over it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you're never over it. It's just different things will trigger for you that will cause that pain to return. Um, so anyway, long, deep conversations Rowan and I have had about about grief and, and sadness, but yes. I think it's such an important understanding of it, though, because I always expected my grief to at some point feel less. But when mm-hmm. I feel it, it feels just as strong. And sometimes it feels yep. different, but the the strength is is not changed all the time. Right. And I actually, I, I love this understanding of it. And I, I think about it so often. So I, thanks to you. But I think Orpheus in this story never allows the ball to shrink. No. Not, not once. Not when he goes down to the underworld. Not when he fails in his quest. And not after. He like clings on to it. And I wonder if some of that is him mining his trauma for art kind of after the fact. Yep. Yep. I feel like I feel like that is something that as artists, <laughs> we sort of uh, I, I think of uh, everything I've, I've ever made that I'm proud of has been a reaction. <sighs> um, I know. And, and I, I try and remind people of this and they're like well what's the like what's the process or like how do i get inspired and i'm like you can the the things that i've made that i've been the most proud of are are never for lack of a better term actions they're never things that i've been like i want to make this thing and then i go and make that thing or like i want to make this thing for no like it just seems like a fun thing to do and then i make that thing it's always been a reaction to something that i've experienced and i'm making a thing that 
that allows me to take the uh, the feelings that I'm having because of something and put them into my own uh, creation, right? And because of that, I have to constantly remind myself that I can't lock myself in a room and just create. Uh, yeah. Right? Because if I lock myself in a room and I create, then I'm never, then, then at some point, I, and this has been, you know, one of the, with the pandemic, one of the things that's a challenge is like, you kind of have to go through things to be able to mine those experiences for art. Um, at least in my experience, the, the, the best art I've made has come from that. Um, and, and so, uh, so yeah, so not just like sitting at home and working, but like going out and doing things and talking to people and experiencing things good and bad, um, is so key. So anyway, sorry for the tangent, but that's, that's kind of like what this reminds me of. No, you don't apologize. That's the point of the episode. That's why you and I like this story so much. (laughs) Yeah. I, I'm always walking that line of, you know, diligence to your work, locking yourself in the room and doing the work and also experiencing life. I personally, I think the work of mine that people resonate with the most is work where I reveal myself the most. And I don't Mm -hmm. necessarily think that it has to be work that is about my life or about my specific perspective. Like the character doesn't have to be exactly me or how I feel. Sure, totally, totally. there is the work that has resonated. There is always something in there that I have like had to have a moment where I'm like, okay, I guess I'm putting that in there. I'm, yep. I'm there. There we go. <laughs> yeah, it's a piece of you, right? And I think that that is when you, when we give a piece of ourselves to the thing that we make, it does. I, I think people can tell. Like, I think that yeah. there's like there's a there's like a difference there, right? And that and that you're like, well, this is real, and people feel that it's real because of that. And um, you know, and in, in, in the case of Orpheus, it's like he literally gives his entire being to like the music he is making mm-hmm. in these moments, and uh, in these moments where it matters. And because of that, uh, Hades and Persephone like see that, I think, and and respond to it every single time he does it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing. He He's in a scenario where he's bargaining with death. This story is yeah. so much about the phase of bargaining with death. And I love the idea that in this tale, in this pantheon, death is someone that you can literally bargain with. Or rather, yeah. the ruler of the underworld, the ruler of the domain of death. And he right. is the person who is most equipped to do it. He is most vulnerable, most able to express himself, most skilled in that expression, because it's not just vulnerability, it's also skill. Yeah. And yet, he still cannot conquer death. And there is something in there, the idea that we have this myth where someone has the opportunity to interact with the gods, and yet death is unconquerable. It will it will win every time. And that, to me, makes this myth a way for the listener to work through and understand grief because you can do anything you want on this plane or another, but death is an absolute. And in this tale, I don't want to say trickery is the thing that gets him, but like, you know, a complication. Yeah. But it doesn't matter what form it is. It just gets you in the end. Yeah, well, and we're going to talk about it later, too, but, like... We keep saying we're going to talk about it later and then talking about it. 
<laughs> do it. Do it's it. Just do no, it, no, no. It's just, I'm just talking. I mean, we have a whole thing about it, so I don't want. I don't want to go too deep into it yet. But it talks about like uh, I don't want to skip ahead too much because then uh, my brain will explode. But the <laughs> just the idea that like that we, I guess that that there is no uh. There, there is no like lesson in the way there's lessons in lots of other Greek myths. There's not like, there, there are things to learn certainly, but there's no, it's not, uh, it's not like a, what is that called? Uh, like a parable, like a allegory. Yeah, it's not like a parable. I mean, it, 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 it certainly has stuff in there that you're like, oh, I see myself in this or I see the like story in this, but it doesn't have like a thing. It's like, and that's the lesson we learned. Right. But um, bum You know? Yeah. It's, which is, which is interesting. Makes it interesting to me. Lessons, learning lessons in story, I, th- is a lot. It's been brought into our understanding of what a story must be in a lot of ways because of Christianity. Uh, Interesting. In in stories that predate monotheism, there's a lot more nature gets people, whether they're good yeah. or bad. And you can be the best character and virtuous, but you still might have a bad thing happen. Uh, yeah. So I think that might be some of it, but I, I understand your longing. You know what? Let's okay. We're transitioning into doubt because yeah, we should just yes, we should just go into that because we're here. <laughs> this is the thing that you and I disagree with or disagree about on this yeah. story. I think so. Okay, so the questions that Spencer and I have been pondering: Did Orpheus turn at the very end because he doubted Eurydice was behind him, or did he turn too soon? Because he stepped out into the light of day and he wanted to share it with his wife. And it's funny. These are questions that, um, that at least in the research I was doing, that everybody has, right? Like this, uh, this, this is, is the, the question. question. Like, why? Um, and uh, basically the doubt that sneaks up on Orpheus at the very last moment um, is what makes this myth. Unlike most other Greek tragedies for me because it isn't about the hero's fatal flaw like serving as their undoing. Like in Hercules, we like see his reckless behavior and toxic masculinity come back to bite him when he angers the wrong gods and Oedipus spurs his own downfall when he ignores the advice of the Oracle and continues prodding into his family's lineage. And in contrast, Orpheus's ultimate mistake does not develop out of a character flaw. So like in Ovid's Metamorphosis, uh, Ovid, Ovid's Metamorphosis? That's the, Ovid is the correct pronunciation, right? Who knows? Only, only Ovid could say, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> or is it Ovid? Uh, in, we'll say Ovid. In Ovid's Metamorphosis, uh, it simply says that uh, he was, and I'll quote, uh, afraid she was no longer there and eager to see her. What is, like, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> there's nothing, like, there's no canonical explanation it's beyond both. that. And there's no reasoning for the tragedy. And it, it, that's kind of the most, for me, the most frustrating but also the most intriguing part of the story, because in the end, after everything he did to save her, he fails. And not because of, like, some huge flaw that, like, teaches us an important lesson about life. It's because he wanted to make sure the woman he loved was there with him. And, and you know, there's, of course, like, a thousand opinions why the story ends up that way and, 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 um, and what it's trying to say because of that. But... Uh, for me, I think that like maybe that's the point, right? That like 
the point of the story might be, I, I don't know, I couldn't tell you, but like the, one interpretation that I have of it amongst many is that like sometimes tiny mistakes have huge consequences <sighs> and that the world isn't always fair. Um, or that like broken rules have consequences, right? Like there's that lesson too of like, yeah, we told you, you do this thing, you do this thing and you'll get what you want. And he's like, I've always gotten what I wanted. I'm be just fine. Yes. And then does the thing, thinks he's, thinks he is above that and then does it. But, but the thing is the myth doesn't say that. The myth doesn't say like, oh, Mm-mm, he like, no. he thought, he thought that it would be fine. Like he was like bold and, um, and, and, and cocky and was like, He's not going to do that and then turns. It just says he wished to see his wife, at least in the the re- the sellings that I've <laughs> seen of like, you know, the, uh, in, in Ovid's take. Um, anyways, uh, he he just wishes he could see his wife and then she's gone. Um, And that's horrifying, right? Like one tiny mistake you make because of uh, a, a, a doubt that you have in your mind and you turn back and you look and you're like, oh, everything's fine. But. It's not. Um, it's it's a fascinating and and I think um, uh, it's a part of the myth that I don't understand, and that is why it intrigues me. My guess is that one of the reasons people today try to view doubt as a character flaw is. Perhaps because of our modern understanding that comes from the Old Testament, actually. Okay, so speaking of monotheism, um, in episode 48, Tracy goes into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah of our podcast. But basically, in the book of Genesis, Lot and his wife are fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah as it's just falling to the ground, absolute destruction. And God says, don't look back at the cities. And Lot's wife cannot resist. And then, bam, he turns her into a pillar of salt. And as as you do, there's as a classic, right? You know, just classic pillar of salt, pillar of salt. No biggie. <laughs> um, there's you could say that he turns her into a pillar of salt for disobeying or you could say it was for doubting God's right. word. But then taking that into some modern religions, doubt is a crime. Yeah. There's a whole play in a movie about it. And I, I don't think doubt is a character flaw. It's just a human experience that is not ideal. Well, it's the opposite of faith. Yeah, right. True. But doubt also is a part of faith in many religions. No, no. I mean, I mean, in a, in a way that I don't think is, I, I completely agree with you that it is not a character flaw. Uh, it's, it's just interesting to me that like there is the concept of faith, mm. right? And the faith is like, even if you don't know, you got to believe. Like, even if you're not sure, you have to be sure. And that is literally saying, do not doubt, right? That is like right. quite literally what faith is saying is like, you don't, I mean, and, and you're right. Doubt is a part of faith because we go, because in having, uh, for those who have faith, there is, I'm sure, not a part of them that doesn't sometimes doubt uh because they move so hard in that direction there's a response there from their brain right actually this goes into the quote that i love spencer found this amazing article that we both read uh in psychology today and it's by fletcher wartman and it's titled the psychology of orpheus why do we look back it was so good fascinating yeah oh my god (laughs) 
So I want everyone to hear this. I was quote. like psychology. I was like psychology today. Did yep. Okay, that's what we're gonna. That's that's like such a cool. Like I don't know. It was like I, when I found it, I was like, oh my god, we have like a scientific <laughs> magazine that's talking about a, a Greek myth. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Okay, so this quote: "The command I must not look back encapsulates its own undoing. It is literally impossible to read that sentence aloud without simultaneously speaking its negative." Every time you repeat, I must not look back, you are forced to say, look back. That, to me, is what makes Hades' trick so fantastically clever. The article continues, So perhaps the fatal flaw of Orpheus is that, in accepting Hades' offer, he refuses to accept the psychological cost of the undertaking. His journey so far, after all, has been a relatively easy one. For his entire life, Orpheus's gift has proven devastatingly effective at persuading others. His voice charms Eurydice, Cerberus, Hades himself. But climbing out of the underworld, restless and uncertain, Orpheus is forced to negotiate with the one mind he cannot influence through song. His own. Boom. Oh my god. Mic drop. Such a great- Literal mic drop. Ah! He can't he can't manipulate himself with his music. It's fantastic. Yeah. So quoting the Virgil version of this myth, he wrote, Sudden madness seized the incautious lover, one to be forgiven if the spirits knew how to forgive. He stopped and, forgetful, alas, on the edge of light, he was conquered. He looked back now at his Eurydice. I love it being described as sudden madness yeah. because doubt creeps in slowly uh-huh. and you experience it and it mounts and it mounts and mounts. And then sometimes when you break, it is absolutely just visceral. It's yeah, it's unconscious in some ways. It's like not something you're choosing. It's it's um, involuntary uh, and involuntary in mind. Right. And I think it's the moment of that. Like, when do you let. When do you let doubt in your mind become something that you act on? Ugh. Like that is the threshold, right? Like you can doubt in your mind, but it's the minute you act on it's the minute he acted on it that it became an issue. And it it killed Eurydice for all intents and purposes. Yeah. It foiled the rescue, which would have resulted in her life. Right. Ah. Oh, okay, I'm going to say it, though. I prefer the version of this story where all the way up the hill, he trusts that Hades kept his word, even though often the gods play tricks on mortals and yeah, he yeah, totally yeah. had a right to doubt to think them. That, yeah, think that Hades right. was tricking him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in one version of the story, he even, he does. So anyway, but he's he's trusting. He's had such an easy life. He's young and he's innocent. And he walks all the way up the hill with his sweet, young, pretty, talented feet, and Eurydice is behind him, and the mistake that he makes is being too happy too soon. Like, he sees the light, he's there, and he turns around and he's like, my love, we did it, and that's what costs him foolishness and happiness. I love that version. So sad. I love it. I love that he didn't even... I I just... I'm so excited by the idea of him not even making a mistake. He didn't yeah. even doubt. He was like, I went down there. I convinced them. He said, Eurydice is going to be behind me. She has always been behind me. And I'm 
I'm overjoyed. I'll, all I do is share my joy. His music yeah. was all about joy before her death. Yeah. I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so horrible. It's like the most tragic, I think, of all of them, right? Like, it's he doesn't even have the... It's not even that he did a thing. And that is what... It's not even that like, he did a thing and the consequence of him doing a thing led to... I mean, he did, but like, it's right. not even that like he had, he had doubt or he had a thing. And then like, and, and, and that, and the reaction to that, uh, in a negative way is what led to her being taken back. It was the reaction in a, uh, in a positive way. His positive reaction, his like joy is what led to her sorrow, which is bad things happen to good people. You know, sometimes just bad things happen and good people are in the way, you know? Oh, no. That's part of the reason we've talked about this before, that you and I like tragedy so much. I love a sad story because one of the reasons that I've learned through this podcast is nothing is ever as good or as bad as you imagine it will be in life. And so often I feel joy and love large swaths of my life. And yet joy is not always all-encompassing. Very often, even ecstatic joy isn't. It doesn't wipe away the things. It doesn't get rid of the spike of grief or what have you. And I think that tragedy is a way of saying that the story is not over. Mm -hmm. And because the mundanity of life can be so tragic from one day or another, I like the idea of the heroes being in that kind of almost with me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's, um, in story structure in like (laughs) to go, to go, uh, our favorite, uh, you know, uh, the Joseph Campbell, uh, favorite meaning, uh, meaning, uh, you know, like, like very, uh, (laughs) very film school or, uh, you know, literary nerd, uh, uh, privilege orange county uh film school nerd um we just talk about the musings of joseph campbell you know like oh, yeah uh it's just the 12 the, steps it, of the, the hero's 12 journey steps of the hero's journey like i know story but like <laughs> but like there there is there is um th- what i take from that right is that like there is a structure by which we expect story to take shape um and when it breaks that it breaks it for a reason I just saw um, everything everywhere all at once. Oh, I, I want to see that. it so bad. I have plans for this weekend. Don't tell me. It is. I'm not going to tell you anything. But uh, one of the things that 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 does in an interesting way is it upends story structure. Um, it does really cool things with with the the uh, you know um, the hero's journey uh, in a way that that stays familiar enough for us to like track it as a story uh, that we recognize, but also does some cool stuff that we that I didn't expect. Um, and whenever we break that structure, we notice whenever that whenever that structure is broken, I should say, in a story, we kind of notice because we're so used to Marvel movies, right? <laughs> in some respect of like we know what the structure of those movies are. We know what the structure of um, you know, of, of, of big blockbuster story is. And so when that is upended, it makes us feel something that is, I, I went and saw West Side Story, um, which, you know, we're going to talk about, uh, Roman and Juliet here in a bit, but like that, that movie just ends bad. <laughs> 
like yep. i mean obviously you know like the the musical the stage musical and the old movie uh but like seeing the new one it reminded me oh yeah this just ends horribly uh there's no good there's no happiness uh here at the end everything everything is bad um and in that it it, it it's it feels distinct because it says like this is not the story you expected right, right. The, the things are not always clean and good and happy by the end sometimes things are bad sometimes shit happens and we don't have control over it and that's life man <laughs> like <laughs> that's like, life man but 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 it's what we do in response right and that's our story is lord capulite gonna get it together is right. he gonna make a change yeah uh no. what is the no <laughs> but what is what is our response to that failure and that is the hero cycle right the hero cycle is you have to fail before you succeed and and so by presenting failure as the end of a story we are then asking the audience to fill in the rest mm-hmm. so that's kind of the, that's my fascination with with tragedy um and how it upends what we expect stories to be I quickly want to talk about another myth that is very similar to Orpheus and Eurydice. It it comes from Japan, and I talk about it all the way back in episode three. So if you want to go all the way back in this podcast's history, you can hear me really go into more detail. But Izanami and Izanagi are central deities or kami from the Japanese creation myth. Basically, they were brother and sister. They got married. I won't go into details She dies, and she goes to the underworld, and he says, I'm going to rescue you. And she says, great, but you can't, don't light a match or anything. You can't see me. And he does and sees that she's a rotting corpse, and he runs away in fear. And then she chases after him with a gang of violent female spirits, and she is the one who tries to deliver a punishment. And she is the embodiment of wrath. And it, I really like that contrast to this myth because yeah. our gal has some agency. Yeah. Uh, first of all, super cool, right? Like, right. oh, you th- don't think I'm you, – you expected me to be beautiful for you? Nah. I'm no. a, and then you got then – you, then you had a negative reaction when you actually saw who I am. Uh, yeah, I'm going to – I'm going to – I'm going to get you. Like I'm going to send an army of evil spirit yes. women after you. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. It's so amazing. And I, you know, I said it before, Eurydice, modern adaptations love to give her a character because that is what we do often. Yep. But in the original, she is a nymph and therefore she is a prop. She just is described as beautiful. She's beautiful in there. <laughs> Two characteristics. It. Right? Like, what does she do? Who is she? What is she like? We don't get a sense from from the um like source what what she is like. We just know she's a prop for Orpheus. Like that's kind of the So let's talk about angry women that do exist in the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Yes. All the way back in the the time of the ancients. This These actually exist. This is no modern adaptation. Okay. By the way, I sort of apologize for this um, because I always think that I'm going to be straightforward in this podcast and then I always find like the angry women 
in the story and kind I'm of like so here for it derail us. So I'm a little sorry. It's one of my favorite parts of this podcast. So please do not be sorry. <laughs> in Symposium, Plato writes, quote, He showed no spirit, did not dare like Alcestis to die for love, but was contriving how he might enter Hades alive. Moreover, they afterwards caused him to suffer death at the hands of women as the punishment for his cowardice. He describes Orpheus as a coward for trying to cheat death. He's going against the gods. But he also just mentioned an angry mob of women. It's fascinating because I, it, Plato uh, is very specific in being like, now Orpheus is coward. And like, I, that is not, that doesn't, there might be other sources that do that as well, but uh, from most of the stuff I was reading, most people are like, no, he's like a hero for going to save her. And Plato's just like, why not just die, bro? Like, <laughs> if you really care that much, just die and be with her. Like, why are you trying to cheat death? Uh, you're a coward for doing that. Right. It's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. So enter the Maenads. They were the female followers of Dionysus, who came to be known as the Bacantes when the Romans adapted Dionysus into Bacchus. As we know, the Romans basically were like, hey, ancient Greeks, can I copy your homework? And the ancient Greeks were like, yeah, just change some things so no one notices. And the Romans were like, yeah, 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 sure, sure. And just changed names. So good. It's so true. It's exactly what it was. It's so good. Dionysus and his Roman counterpart were the god of wine and pleasure. So these women are described as wild women who primarily wore fawn or leopard skin with one or both breasts likely exposed. They're often depicted carrying a thyrosus or a ceremonial staff, which is topped with a pine cone and sometimes has a knife attached. That is the best image, by the way. It's just a staff. And a little pine cone on top. And then just a knife, like, taped to the side. <laughs> I want to make a druid like this so yes, bad. so bad. It's so good. <laughs> they wore ivy wreaths on their heads. And most importantly, they took to nature to take part in these ecstatic dances that were so emotional and got them into such a transcendent state that it filled them with strength and courage. And these are the women who kill Orpheus. There are many, 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 many reasons in different tellings. Um, for example, in some, he wishes for death, um, and so that happens. And in some, the the murder is even attributed just to generally the women of Thrace. But basically, either Orpheus disrespected Dionysus by worshipping only Apollo, his dad, or he spurned too many women who desired him for too long, or he played so much sad music grieving his loss that he annoyed these women and they were like, enough of this. That is absolutely my favorite interpretation. Oh, it's that the he's just best. sad boy, sad boy musician for too long. And they're like, dude, just get your shit together. Shut like, up. Shut up. You so are good. interrupting our <laughs> sexy dances with your sadness. Stop it. They're like, up next is Orpheus, and everybody's like, oh, God. There's a version where his morning songs called the Maenads, and they were in such a, quote, frenzied mood. 
And Orpheus longed for death. And so basically they just did the work for him. He was like, please kill me. And these frenzied women were like, we got you. <laughs> They're like, you got it. <laughs> so Gladly. They, <laughs> <laughs> so they kill him. They chop him up and they toss all the pieces and his lyre into the river Hebrus. And Wikipedia writes, quote, his head and lyre, still singing mournful songs, floated down the river Hebrus into the sea, after which the winds and waves carried them to the island of Lesbos. There, the inhabitants buried his head and a shrine was built in his honor, where his oracle prophesied until it was silenced by Apollo. Out of jealousy. Um, quote, in addition to the people of Lesbos, Greeks from Ionia and Atolia consulted the oracle, and his reputation spread as far as Babylon. Orpheus's lyre was carried to the heavens by the muses and was placed among the stars. And there are some tellings that Orpheus brought medicine to the people and some agriculture. You know, he had this whole grand life. And his oracle became so popular that Apollo was like, mm, okay, I know you were my son, but enough of this. Yeah. <laughs> so even while his head was prophesying, he did get to go be with his love. Okay. Are you ready for my favorite quote that I read during this research? Yes. Yes, I am so ready. Daniel Mallory Orthberg, writing for The Toast, said, quote, One of the greatest aspects of ancient Greek civilization was the persistent belief that there was nothing women liked better to do than assemble a gang, air their tits out, and roam the countryside beating men to death. This was, sadly, a myth. But it did not stop generations of European painters from imagining what savage bands of female murderesses might have looked like. I, I, the word sadly is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> this was sadly a myth. <laughs> oh, such a bummer. Okay, so we often pull up artwork on this podcast Spencer, I pulled up this painting for you. It's called Death of Orpheus by Emile Levy. It's from 1866. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, this is horrifying. It's so good. I'm so here for it. It literally describes what you just said with Orpheus just laying dead on the ground. Hold on. I have to zoom in on this. Okay. <laughs> yeah, his lyre's like laying broken. You see the strings are all undone. And there's just a... It was a woman with a canine tails is that what that is and then and then a scythe do you see the scythe yeah and there's one woman holding a statue of dionysus yes. up on her shoulders okay there, there's a woman playing what looks like a flute is that what that is i think so and she's naked and then she has another one she is naked and she has another one in her hand or is that a i don't know what that is i it might be a pine cone staff it, i don't see a pine cone though it's like a, she's like holding it against her hip. Do you see that? There's like a, yeah. anyway, go, go look. It's, we are describing in a, in a visual. Okay, but what about the woman in blue? We got to talk about the woman in blue because the blue paint was extra expensive. So this yes. woman was a costly paint. Yes, she was the most extravagant of them. There's a woman on the right side in blue who has her head tilted back, long uh, sort of reddish hair with a, what is that? Like a head? A headpiece, like a like yeah. She's got the ivy wreath. She's got the ivy. Oh yeah, she has the ivy wreaths, and then she just has a snake wrapped around her. Which, given how Eurydice died, is even more interesting to me. That they're like taunting him with the thing that killed his love, and it's also totally about to bite her in the boob. 
Yeah, and she doesn't care. No. She's and there's like, also, do it. I think a jaguar over that's like taking part in the murder. There is a jaguar on the left-hand side and I did not. That's This is like that. I don't know if you've ever seen that video where like they're like, can you tell how many people in a white shirt are dribbling the basketball? And they like pass a basketball oh, around. And they're like, have you seen that? And they're like, there's a there was actually a, a, a gorilla that walked through the scene and you didn't notice it. Do you know which video I'm talking about? <laughs> no, but okay, I hate stuff a video, like that. And, th- and then you like watch the second time. You're like, oh my God, I was too busy counting the people and I didn't notice literally a man in a gorilla suit walk through the middle of the frame. That is this painting but with a jaguar there is quite literally a jaguar in the left hand side of the frame and i did not notice it until you said that it is terrifying it looks like it's about to eat him um it, to be fair it is in the background a little bit but there's one male figure in the back that i can't is it a satyr it looks like someone might be getting it on in the background uh you know he's faced the opposite way of the woman behind him uh, but it looks as though she, I mean, she's leaned back like she's doing something to him. I, I can't don't know. quite tell. The other thing that I didn't notice until just now, there's the woman that's above him with the scythe, right? And then there's a the woman above uh, him with the kind of nine tails and then the woman with the viper or the, the, I don't know if it's a viper, but you know, it's a snake. It's a viper now. It's a viper now. Um, and then Dionysus and all these things. Anyway, there's there's a woman that is behind the woman with the scythe her head is just barely poking through do you see that oh she's playing the drum what is she doing i think she's playing a drum the woman all the way in the back no 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 this is a woman right in front right next to orpheus and is holding him oh i totally missed her i totally missed her until just now but she's holding him and that's all she's doing as if to hold him in place so that the other woman can strike him with this scythe Oh, wow. Okay, well. She's like, yeah, yeah, I'll hold him. You do the job, right? So I looked through a lot of paintings of women killing Orpheus to pull what I felt like was the best I'm very not surprised by that sentence. (laughs) Perhaps the least surprised of anything you said in the podcast by that sentence. I'll post it on the Instagram for anyone who wants to see it. Please (laughs) do. But I instantly, I was like, okay. Were these women only in mythology, or did they really exist? Sure. It's a great question. I found the source of all sources. In their dissertation for Penn State, uh, the quote, The Maenads, more than Greece's good time girls, an examination in Athenian image, text, and historical evidence by Krista Marie Eubels. They write, quote, this is so good. Okay. Evidence from inscriptions supports the existence of real Maenad activity in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE. This dissertation highlights the high status of the Maenads as tragic figures, as time-honored, and as important to Athenians. There is an increase seen in, quote, real material evidence of Maenadism that coincides with a decrease in the marginality of women's appearance in public spheres into the Hellenistic age. From inscriptions describing the penalties to be paid for not attending meetings and for not joining the dance on the hill, more than social status is indicated. It seems that a particular economic status of well-born and presumably citizen women who participated in Mainidism in ancient Greece was required. This is contrary to the images we have of wild women, free and unrestricted. 
that it is seen on vases, but is truer to the image of the ancient Greek historians who implied that maenads were well-respected citizen women who were socially sanctioned to perform the important rites of Dionysus, end quote. Okay, so basically, <laughs> the maenads were middle to upper class women who held power that were not crazy and were likely not in a wild sex cult, but they did have power. So in the story in which a man reveals his feelings and is too much and just turns down all these women who want to have sex with him, they come along and kill him, which is just such a clever way to tell women who may be altering the societal structure exactly where their place should be. Because if you convince men that the countryside is just swarming with herds of murderous, bare-breasted ladies, you simultaneously allow your male audience to sexualize them and encourage them to channel fear into anger. I love it so much. I hate it, but I, I love it so much. Yeah, that's wild. That's absolutely wild. Okay, I, I do appreciate you going off on that tangent with me no this is fascinating i mean i'm rereading <laughs> i'm literally rereading the quote that you that you posted because it is i haven't read this and it is so good i mean it's bad it's horrible but like it explains so much <laughs> about the perception also I, the, the, like just looking i mean this you know this painting that you that you've posted again go look on the instagram if you want to see it it's very good um there are so many details in here that i didn't see on first uh look through but like is you know even just like the interpretation of their posing um given this and like one of these women has what looks like fairy wings i know what is that and and then there's a hand that does not have a body i know that this is so european you see the hand at the top of the of the thing anyway there's there's so much stuff in this that is like it, it speaks to exactly what you were just talking about which is like they are they're things to be afraid of, right? They're foreign. They're like things that you don't, um, I guess the best way to put it is like, they, you, you should be afraid, <laughs> right? You should channel the channeling into fear, uh, or channeling fear into anger. Of, like these women are riding around the countryside, just killing men. Um, and, and paintings like this really reinforce that they are, that they are more than just like, that you, that they aren't just women that could be, um, you know, uh, that could, I, I guess that could like be handled in some yeah. way like, that you, that they are wild and that they are they're literally holding vipers and doing all sorts of stuff. So like that is how you channel that into, you know, channel that fear into anger, I think. And it's worth pointing out, there is a piece of pottery that I found that's a woman just freaking slicing a man in half that is part of this mainage depiction and that was more current to the time. And this European painting is European painters being like, Oh, look, I painted a historical thing. So you can't say that I was being too sexual. The naked ladies are history. Right. Come on. Right, 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 right. They're able to paint people who are, I mean, that woman is just wearing a thing tied around her waist, but it's only covering, it's covering basically nothing. The uh, manipulation <laughs> traveled through centuries. Centuries. Yeah. Do you ever just like listen back to yourself and then want to scream at yourself? <laughs> That's called doing a podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm back for the outro of this episode. Look, it's Tracy. I grabbed her because I missed her. 
<laughs> I missed you too, but I really, really loved the episode that you and Spencer did. And if you guys loved it too, I have good news for you. Next week is the second half of the Orpheus and Eurydice episode with none other than Spencer Stark. Yeah, Spencer and I had too much fun and talked for too long, so we had to divide the episode into two. It's going to be exciting. We're going to talk about some fun things like Hades Town, which we know all of you listeners probably love just as much as us. We're going to talk a lot about gaming, but you have to wait. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But before we wrap up, Rowan, tell me something good. Oh, I'm doing the easy cop-out. We had Spencer Stark on our podcast. The something good is hanging out with friends. You went away and I missed you madly, but it's so nice having really amazing people come on our pod. So I'm cheating. That's our something good. That's fine. Ask me real quick something good. Tracy, tell me something good. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, I love playing D&D with you. That's my something good. We've been in a fun (laughs) all-girls D&D group, and it's just yes-anding and laughs and fun art we draw of each other. It's so much fun. So I'm excited for that. No kidding. Tracy doesn't know this yet. We're going to be talking a lot about that game in the next episode. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to hear that, check in with us next week. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Mm, Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our editor is Tyler Fetzik, our music is by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course... Join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. We did a podcast. Thanks for joining. Of course. Thank you for <laughs> having me. So awesome. I appreciate You're the it. Best sad boy there's ever been. <laughs> I'm pretty happy. I just love sad stuff. It's not about being happy or sad. It's about the vibe. It's about the vibe.